HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef and owner of Samisa Restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Many restaurant cooks, and probably some of you listening while on your way to a desk job, have had that desire to drop it all and follow your culinary dreams by traveling around the world working at revered fine dining establishments. You hone your skills, you make connections, you learn about plating and seasoning, and learning to work as part of a team. Then maybe, after you work at some of the top places in the world, you can come to New York and take over an institution, or maybe two of them, and put your own stamp on them. My guest today took just that path. After originally studying history, she changed course and worked at some of the top restaurants in the entire world, including Mugaritz, The Vineyard at Stockcross, Interlude in Australia, and, and more. In New York City, she's worked at Atera, Corton, and El Buco Alimentari, and received a glowing New York Times two-star review while in charge of the kitchen at Chumley's. Now, as the executive chef at Gotham Bar and Grill, Chef Victoria Blamey has reached new heights and acclaim, including a three-star review in the New York Times and an 87 out of 100 from New York Magazine. 
Today we'll be talking about her extensive resume, which jobs over the years have meant the most to her, connecting with mentors, and the pressure of taking over an institution from a legend. Chef, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you were born in Santiago, yes. the capital of Chile. I think a lot of people don't really know that much about Chile and mm -hmm. about Santiago, so it is a really big city. Uh -huh. uh, it has millions <laughs> and millions of people. Uh, can you give a little background on what it was like to grow up there? Did you live in, in the suburbs? Did you live in the city? Uh, what was your experience um, like? I mean, funny, to be honest. I mean, I... I I, you know, sort of have nostalgia, obviously, because I haven't lived there in 15 years now, going to 16, I believe. And um, it was interesting. You know, I always, I was kind of like the odd bird, I would say. You know, I only child as well. Uh, it had its challenges because of that. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up in the city, uh, right in Santiago. Um I think it was an interesting childhood because, you know, I grew up with a lot of women around, you know, the women in my family are very strong. Um, I was brought up by my mom, mainly. Um, didn't really have a relationship with my dad until, um, actually never, you know, I saw him a couple of times when I was like 18 years old, lived somewhere else. They broke up when they were very, very young and she had me when she was very young. So my childhood was interesting because I was always... Um, I kind of had to try to be social, you know, to make friends. Uh, my mom worked, you know, seven days a week for many, many years. Um, an incredible woman. And and it was an interesting childhood because I, I had the challenges of trying to be social, you know what I mean, and deal with a lot of things that were very conservative uh, about the country, you know, social-wise. Did... So because your mom was working so much, was mm -hmm. there someone else that sort of raised you Took day to me. day? Was there, was there like a grandma in the picture? Uh, or no, did you just, no, no. So you kind of learned from a young age how to fend for yourself. Well, I mean, you know, look, my mom did an amazing job. Of course, she worked a lot as she was present. You know, obviously I had a nanny. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, I think I had a lot of, I was, I was very proper, you know, super... Um, I think I behaved really well to the point I was 15 years old and then everything went, just went downhill. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, what I appreciate the most is just the fact of how close I am with my mom. You know, I mean, she's so young. We have an amazing relationship. So, but yeah, I would say it was challenging in a couple of, you know, schools for sure. You know, being also um, growing up, growing up from uh, parents that are separated, you know, in Chile, I don't know if people knew, but back in that time there was no divorce law so you couldn't get divorced you would have to be it would be an annulment you know and that would be by the church so my mom was actually divorced back only in 2006 so you know those challenges were interesting for sure and so you you said that you were close in age up to a certain point were you kind of looking at her like a friend and then did that uh -huh. turn as you realized that she had control over you and did that make you rebellious or? I think for sure it was a, the point of like, I mean, you know, look, I had a stepdad. Um, we did not have a, an amazing relationship. You know, I think it was tricky. He was much older than my mom. 
uh, by like 15 years. And I think up to the point of 13, 15, you know, you're trying to understand who you are or trying to under kind of see who you're going to be. You're not a child. You know, you're a teenager. I think it's tricky. You, you rebel against everything. At least that's what I did. You know, shave my hair, dyed it blue, then, you know, whatever. I did like so much. Probably not get a tattoo was the only thing until I was 36, funny enough. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, then later on, I realized, you know, probably I was still very good at school, funny enough. Um, it was just my attitude, you know. Um, and I think at that time, my mom and I, of course, were not super, super close. And then, but it was only like a few years, you know, it was like probably three, four years. I also changed schools. That was also tricky. So, so when you are in this kind of teenage almost about to go on your own, how do you make the determination of what you're looking to pursue and what you are going to do with the rest of your life? Were you interested in history? Was that the safe route to go? Pressure from mom or stepdad? No, I think actually I was always interested in literature. Um, I actually wanted to study literature. I got like a, I didn't really get a no from my mom, but I got a definite sort of no from other people, you know? Um, it's like the career that you're going to make no money. Um, so no one wants you to be a teacher, you know? I think in pretty much every country in South America, teachers also have minimum wage and, you know, so on and so on. So then they kind of, you know, slightly told me to what about journalism and I was like there for a year and then I changed to history because I actually did love history hated journalism absolutely hated it you know the whole point of like you couldn't give your opinion the whole year it's like about being objective I was like who the hell wants to be objective <laughs> so I was like my mom didn't raise me for that so <laughs> my mom was like no you should speak your mind all the time and I was like yeah not quite sure these days um so no, so I mean I like history, um, but I was I was I always been very active, super hyperactive probably, tons of energy. So I used to be very different from my, you know, kind of friends at, at uh, university. And um, even though I read a lot, my essays were great. I loved to study. I was just like running around different classes. You know, I did this kind of weird Japanese um, uh, sort of, what was it? It was like a crazy thing that I did for like a month and I couldn't move. It's like an exercise, but it's actually artwork that you do. So I was, I was always finding something different to do. And it was, to be honest, very hard to actually do it in Santiago. You would have to go sort of underground level to find things that they were different, you know? I mean, I think in general, Chile was not a very diverse country ever. Um, Santiago, obviously the same. And I always wanted to find something different. You know, I always wanted to have something that wasn't the norm. I would find it sometimes, you know, with the love that I have for my country, you know, but I would have it sometimes very boring. So I would try to go to different areas. I would like alternative music. If I wanted to buy that, I would have to go to a very weird record store that no one knew about. So I always have to do that. That was kind of like my teenage years. Did there. you have the opportunity uh, to travel and leave Santiago before you kind of made the jump to leave? Or were you... Yeah, I'm actually, I have a, one of the, the trips that made a huge impression. Actually, I lived abroad when I was 18 for a whole year. I took a gap year and I went to Cambridge in England. Um, I went to study English. And that year made a huge difference in my life. I love the fact that all my friends were like from everywhere in the world except, you know, Chile. 
um, uh, Swiss, Chinese, Taiwanese, um, you know, people from South Africa, Australia, Austria, you name it. Like that, to me, the diversity, how cos cosmopolitan everything was, was just like, when I go back, it was it was tough after, you know, to go back to actually Chile to, you know, figure out what the hell I was going to do. <laughs> it, it seems like from a young age, you sort of figured out that you probably weren't going to make your life in Chile. Like you, Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. But then I think probably little by little realized that, yeah, I just kind of felt that that sort of not belonging so much, you know. So that, that feeling of not belonging, how does that impact your decision to forego your studies and pursue a new path? What what made you decide that history was not going to be the right thing for you? And then what was the next decision that you made after that? Did you go and get a cooking job or did you take more, <laughs> more time off in between? Um, I always cooked, you know, since I was like seven. Obviously very bad, very badly. Uh, my mom would eat it because, you know, she's my mom. But then even my mom at one point would be like, can you just try to cook a little less? Because <laughs> I was baking like crazy. And... I think cooking for me was always that family bond. You know, my mom didn't really cook um, at that time. She was, like I said, very much a workaholic and, you know, she had to. But my great aunt used to be an amazing cook. She actually passed away on Sunday and then she was one of the person so you know that actually inspired me, you know, going to her house. And so food was always part of my, part of my whatever made me. I just realized at one point that instead of doing more of my essays, I just kept on cooking until like 4 a.m. in the morning. And then I realized that I'm 19 years old. And I was like, yeah, this kind of like it doesn't make sense. I was 20 then, you know, when I, I it was in the next year in university. And then I just dropped out. I mean, I talked to my mom. And like I said, I have a good relationship. She was very supportive. And she's like, you know, you want to go to cooking school? And she's like, sure. But then she was kind of like, I hope this is it. <laughs> I hope it's like you're not going to keep like jumping from this and that. She so, wanted something to stick at a well, certain I'm point. Well, I'm sure, yeah. you know, I mean, it's tough, you know. I mean, when you're 18, who the, I mean, who told you that you're supposed to know what the hell you want to do for the rest of your life? I don't think really anyone <laughs> does. Even people yeah. that say that they do and they end up doing that thing, I uh -huh. think it's more luck yeah. <laughs> than that they actually yeah. knew when they were 17 or 18 that they were going to, you know, Absolutely. I mean, how many lawyer, people yeah. I haven't met in this career that actually they have two careers, you know, that's their second career. Sure. Yeah. And often some people, it's... Uh, they fell into it because it was out of convenience and some people tried something for 10, 15, 20 years for and sure. then bailed I, on it. You I know? think sometimes it's difficult to follow the, your passion. Mm -hmm. It might sound easy because it is your passion, but sometimes your passion doesn't necessarily, you know, agree with many things in your life, either schedule, you know, social gatherings, you know, how people see your career, how, uh, financials, you know, all of that. It's often much riskier. Yeah, that, for sure. And, and it would have been the it would have been the safer route for you just to go directly and study and get a degree. And yeah, then go and out then into even the, the fact of like even me being a teacher, I was like, you know, sounds good, but also same thing. It's like, so what were you gonna do? Have a PhD? You would have to travel. I mean, you always have to like, you know, go into like this ladder of uh, climbing the ladder. You know. Before we get into sort of culinary school and, and making some some real moves in the food world, mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about 
uh, the food that you grew up eating. I'm uh-huh. not actually really familiar at all with the cuisine of Chile. Uh-huh. Uh, you said that you were doing some baking. Were you doing like chocolate chip <laughs> cookies and like pretty standard uh, baking? I was doing pretty standard things, but I mean, a lot of um, the baking, at least, at least for what we have in Chile, is a German influence for sure. So, you know, you do Kuchen, Berlin, and all those things are 100% German. So I would do that. Um, High German influence. Well, a lot of a lot of people actually after the war went to Germany. I'm mean, sorry, went to Chile. Oh, so okay. now that I'm going to talk about that period, but I'm saying there's a huge colony, mm-hmm. you know, German colony actually in the south of Chile. Oh, okay. Um, and that's a huge impact on the pastries and you know the baking that we do in Chile is pretty much that. It's not necessarily French, you know. So I mean, what I grew up actually eating would be Chilean food doesn't have necessarily a huge like a spectrum you know like mexican food i think one of the things that's interesting these days is that it's about product you know what you can get because of the diverse climate you know up and north you know north south and um you have the coast and the mountains blah 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 patagonia but i mean when i grew up eating was more a lot of seafood you know i grew up eating tons of oysters because i remember my grandfather liking that so much and I was always, you know, I mean, you have no idea. I can eat probably 30 in one sitting just by myself. Clams, rock clams, you know, um, crab. I mean, all those things that I used to do, I remember especially in the summer, you know. Um, and then what I used to make was usually, I mean, as when you're like trying to cook, usually it's a baking recipe. And then later on, I started doing some savory, but it um, wasn't until like way later. I believe. Once I pass the test of like, I can make bread that is not as hard that it doesn't break on the floor when you drop it. <laughs> My mom was like trying to make the, the, the bread wouldn't even break. You know what I mean? It was just like a disaster. <laughs> so I think once I graduated at home, you know, <laughs> I, I passed the test. Yeah. So you go to culinary school and you don't come in with a huge amount of skills <laughs> Clearly not. and, and yeah. no experience. It seems like you really weren't that good at cooking at that point in your uh-huh. life. So do you go to a culinary school in Chile? Did you go somewhere else? Yeah, No, I went to a uh, culinary school in Chile. It was a new school. Mm-hmm. It was literally back in like probably 2001, I think. And then when cooking was supposed to be exciting, you know what I mean? There's new schools. Um, you don't think you're going to be like literally in the same restaurant for like 30 years. So that it wasn't as scary. You know, I did entertain the idea before I went to history. But the idea of going to study in Chile and actually worked in Chile with people that have been in the same restaurant, you know, their career was one restaurant. And I couldn't really see myself doing that. Yeah. Did your skill set, did it, did it escalate very quickly once you got into culinary school? Did you kind of get in a groove and start realizing that it was something that you took too easily or was it just unbelievably hard work for you and did you feel like it wasn't uh, coming (laughs) to you naturally? No, it wasn't hard work. I was just impatient, you know, very impatient to just like graduate. I mean, it was was really silly that it was uh, three years, you know, we had to study three years. I mean, I still don't even, I can't really wrap my head around that. But for me, it was just more like I wanted more. I wanted more, I wanted more quickly, faster and more. So, you know, then you would have vacations. So I remember one of my vacations, actually, I went to work in, um, uh, uh, with Jonathan Eastman in Miami when he had Pacific time. That was freaking thousand years ago, you know? And I did that for three months. And that was a wake-up call of like, yeah, this is how you do 450 covers. And I was like, yeah, sounds awful. <laughs> 
but it was a great experience and yeah i just wanted i just wanted to end you know i wanted school to be wrap it up let me just take whatever degree and i just want to start working you know so that's what it was for me did you carry that kind of frantic energy into yeah. your first cooking jobs or did always 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 so what was the first place that you went to after you graduated culinary school so my whole idea was when I went to do my externships was to get a job abroad you know I mean I think a lot of people in South America had that chip all the time I think now has changed a lot mm-hmm. of like oh I gotta go somewhere else you're always looking abroad you know um, I think that's a common um, factor and a lot of people you know growing up you know, 30 years ago in South America. So I wanted to, a lot of my friends obviously wanted to go to Spain, but I always wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to go back to England. So that time, you know, when I went to Cambridge and I had those friends and the experience. So I wanted to kind of relive this melting pot that I saw that it was so exciting for me. So my goal was always to kind of go into that direction. So I had my last, um, externship was at the Vineyard Stockros. Um, I was incredibly determined um, to get a job. I mean, I don't know how. It's just I know my will. That's inside. My feeling was I really wanted, not knowing whether that would be even an option or not, you know. And then I got a, I got an offer. I was super lucky in that sense, you know. The chef, even though it was extremely challenging, you know, he he vouched for me. I went back to Chile for three months. He got my visa, and then I went back, and then that was it. And how long did you stay in the UK for? Uh, Two and a half years. And all of that time at the vineyard? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And what was that experience like? You were finally abroad in Uh a kitchen doing the job that you wanted to be doing, that you had studied Mm. for three years doing. Satisfying? Let down? How did you feel? (laughs) It was incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard because I think, you know, you're naive. You know, you're, I was 23. Um... I was pretty old, you know, that's very old in a kitchen in England to actually go in as a call me chef. Uh, it was hard because, you know, my externship obviously was amazing. When you're working for free and you do a good job, you're going to get just like applauses everywhere, right? But then you're back and then they remind you that you're back, but now you're working. So that was a slap on the face. Um, that was hard. Um, you know, kind of also understand that you're on your own. Um, it was a live-in situation that they're always crappy, mm. you know. So making, I think I, I at that time it was like 11,000 pounds a year. I mean, that's insane, you know. Um, and then live-in was also hard. You know, you would have different people sometimes from the restaurant, uh, usually front of house, you know, being dirty, messy, you know, working different hours. So that was pretty wild. Um, and their job isn't that intense, so they can drink and party and stay oh, out man, all night. It was, and- it was hard for me, you know. So a lot of what I did was clean, you know. I would clean the apartment on my day off. And I was like, okay, I got to stop doing that. And then I realized, hey, you know what, I'm just going to start going to London on my days off. So then I started doing that. But, yeah, it was hard. I'm not going to lie. It was inspiring, um, challenging. It was, it was a beautiful experience. Um, probably I'm a bit too nostalgic right now when I look back, but I think for sure is what shaped my career, shaped who I am in the kitchen. I think some of those things, obviously, I tried to see in a different way these days. You know, I mean, that was 2004, so a thousand years ago, you know. <laughs> um, but I think for sure I carry with me that discipline, um, determination, you know, and then that will, you know, to make anything happen. So You spend so much time at 
very, very high end, like top restaurant in the world type kitchens where the intensity level is extremely high hmm. and, uh, the attention to detail is, is extreme. Um, were you ever worried about burning out or did you burn out at any point? Because it seems like you just went from one great restaurant to an even greater restaurant to an even greater restaurant. You were really just, um, for such a long time, uh, going from kitchen to kitchen to kitchen. Was it ever mentally and or physically exhausting for you? I think more than mentally, it was physically tiring, but I, I was fine. You know, I think I've been very lucky up to like now, you know, I mean, I'm 40 years old. Um, to have the stamina that my mom has, you know, my mom is incredible, you know, and that power that to just keep going. So I wasn't worried about burning out. I was just worried about losing interest. You know, that, that worried me at one point of like the repetition of things. You know, I think there's been an interesting way how the cuisine and the career and then the path of all of this has changed for a lot of people. And I think between innovation, consistency, and all the things that we talk about these days, you know, sometimes that kind of passion for that kind of the, the, the burning, the kitchen, the sizzling, the noise, you know, the people talking, the, the, all of that harmony to me, sometimes we sort of missed the, the point at one point. You know, I mean, every restaurant, the, the better it was, the more intense and more accolades and awards and... It, at one point it got a bit ridiculous, you know, and by that I mean, you know, how many times a day you have to clean your kitchen, you know, I mean, I, I have a, I always say a slight OCD because it's not super intense, but of course I get bothered when things are misplaced or you're not super clean, fold your towel. I mean, you know, those things are habits that they were formed 15 years ago. So um, I think at one point I got worried that, that I wouldn't feel that passion. You know, that I, that everything would be too, too sterilized, you know what I mean? Too clean. Um, that was my only worry. I was never really worried about me burning out. When you were at, uh, in your sort of formative learning years, it was in 2002 to 2008 when you were doing all this traveling abroad. Mm -hmm. It was really like the height of molecular gastronomy. For when sure. That was coming on and sort of, it became solidified as like, if you want to have a high-end fancy restaurant, you need to be almost heavily manipulating ingredients to be in that discussion, <laughs> right? Like there are some- Well, that's exactly the time, you There know? are some exceptions yeah. to that rule. Like yeah. some people, re there's like a St. John rebellion that right, like right, right, right. didn't do that. But yeah. a lot of the places that you were at were doing this. So That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, so my question in that capacity is- were you there because they were the best restaurants and you wanted to learn from the best? Or was that an appealing style of cuisine for you that you wanted to chase? No, I think I was trying to... Excellency was something that I was striving for. To learn more from the best, to learn more from something different. You know, I think um, whenever you have the feeling of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I never know enough. You know, there's not enough knowledge out there for me that I, I there's not enough time to know. So... For me, it was just more about learning more. I want to learn more. You know, I want to be this like sponge, you know, like succulent. It's just like absorbing as much as I can. So I think that's what it was. But to be honest, um, the vineyard had a really interesting situation because back in 2004, 2005, 2006, you know, El Bui is like freaking 
you know, a gigantic, the most famous chef restaurant in the world, you know, Madrid Fusion was, you know, your dream if you ever going to make it. So I was right in the middle of that because the vineyard was um, very close to a fat duck. Heston Blumenthal did a dinner with us. He was very close friends with my chef at that time. So that's when I was worried. When I started to get worried to like where, how far is this going, you know? I kept seeing things being even so manipulated. I mean, they were treated so much, you know, that at one point I was like, I'm not sure that that's what I want. So I was questioning myself a lot in that period, for sure. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back more with Chef Victoria Blamey. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated palm house and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Executive chef Sarah Flynn's unique menu includes modern dishes with global flavors with a focus on local and seasonal ingredients. Welcome back to the show. Today I'm joined by Chef Victoria Blamey. She has worked all over the world and is now the chef of Gotham Bar and Grill. And we were talking before the break about you finishing up culinary school, going abroad, and really starting on pursuing this as an actual career and getting involved in all these unbelievably high-end restaurants that were garnering all these accolades. If you can quantify into, I know it's hard to consolidate it all into one experience, but when you were abroad at all those places, is there one spot or, or one length of time where you feel like you learned the most and grew the most as a chef? I um, think for sure that would have been at the vineyard. You know, I think that was very... You know, that was the basic, uh, the base of my career, 1,000%. I think for many things, I think, uh, you know, work ethic and uh, food for sure. But then obviously there were other places that made, you know, had a big impact um, with some delay. You know, I would say, for example, Mugaritz was something that I wasn't quite ready to understand once I was there. You know, I mean, I remember they offered me a job to stay and, and I hesitated to stay. But then at one point, you know, I had that problem that I kept moving. I was moving so much, you know, I I felt like I liked the nomad, the nomadic sort of, you know, <laughs> life that I was having. But then at one point I realized that I'm not also having any roots anywhere. So that was my concern at that point. I didn't take the job. I had an amazing, ex- amazing experience with Andoni. But... I say with a delayed uh, delay because, you know, years later was when I understand or maybe a year or so that I, I don't like when people like manipulate something too much. And Mugaritz was 
a, in an amazing combination of that, of like treating the product with respect, but also having a really interesting technique and trying to enhance the flavor and enhance what you're actually trying to do on a dish. I think that kind of ethos, I try to think about it more and more these days. So what brings you to New York City? Obviously, you, you hadn't decided to quite put down roots yet overseas, but you end up coming over to New York and yeah. you haven't left. So <laughs> I got married. <laughs> now I'm divorced, but I got married. <laughs> so is that yeah. what drew you to New York City? Absolutely. That was it. So it was literally, I was just... Uh, did you meet someone cooking abroad and move with them Not here? at all. I had a long-distance relationship for like almost eight years with my ex-husband now. I mean, we're very good friends. Uh, he's a New Yorker. He's got nothing to do with the cooking world. Um, he was just a very interesting man, you know, very curious, also not trying to settle down ever, traveling, um, really social, wonderful person. And then we met at a wedding, you know, super random. I don't really go to weddings. I hate weddings. Although mine was fun, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was it. I mean, we met, we broke up a thousand times, and then I kept moving countries from England to Australia. Then I go to Spain. We reunited in Spain, and it was kind of like the moment of what the hell. You know, kind of like drop your towels sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so then we're like, sure. That was difficult. Um, getting married was not easy. Uh, Visa-wise, not, not us. And then we had a kick-ass wedding, actually, in Mugarit, in San Sebastian. We had an amazing time. Uh, but the solo reason why I came to New York was because I was getting married. Yeah. And so the person who can't be pinned down, finally, <laughs> yeah. you guys pinned each other down. It we seems did. like both of you were free spirits that were not really looking to be uh, anchored to anything. Clearly not. That's why we're also the same now. <laughs> we're back to our roots. Yeah. And so you moved to New York. Did you move here with a job in mind? Did you take a little time not at all. to explore the culinary scene? I mean, it was scary. I think uh, I think one of the things that makes me really scared usually is like my job has always been my my canvas. You know what I mean? It's always dictates my personal life. It dictates everything else. You know, I, I'm so I always I dive in you know, 1000%. So no, I didn't have anything in mind. I was worried about that. You know, um, I think, you know, my work, it's everything to me. Um, I need to understand how not to have just that, but you know, I love what I do. And, and no, there was nothing in mind, nothing that I knew, to be honest with you, I wasn't really interested in coming. I wasn't really looking forward to working in New York. I wasn't, you know, I had a very, I would say probably the attitude was kind of arrogant, you know, coming from Europe. You know, I think Europeans in general have this attitude of like, ah, the state, you know. So not knowing where to go. And then, yeah, I took it slow. I mean, I still couldn't work, you know. Um, we had a summer. It was actually the World Cup, I remember. And I was freaking excited because I love football, the real football. And so, you know, I, it was kind of like six months of, I don't know, amazing, just an amazing feeling of warmth and summer and not being worried about working. But then obviously, you know, I started researching where to go. And one of the things that caught my eye was Corton. And so when you start working at Corton with Paul LeBrant, you are paired with someone who has extreme intensity, a, a lot of focus to detail, mm -hmm. and has been kind of revered for 
uh, his skill set, it's not super heavily manipulated as we right. had just been talking about before. It is yeah. more focused on obtaining wonderful ingredients and, and putting them together. Was that uh, another way to kind of grow for you and help sort of hone in on what your own style might be? Or did you feel like at that point you had your own culinary style no i had no idea i mean i still think like our style you know no one really knows our style until like later on it also changes you know it's, it's like it changes how, as who you are as a person you know you're not the same that you were when you were 15 mm. um no for me it was just like a i thought it was for me it was i was curious it was interesting it was different um then again you know you go for what you know you know i've been working for english chefs for you know, longest period of time. I mean, when I was in Australia, which I had a really hard time, you know, I ended up working for also, uh, you know, English chef. And I loved it, you know. I love the the communication, you know. Yes, I also like the intensity. I love the intensity to details, you know. That is something that I do um, understand. And and the conversation was just always work, you know. So it, it fitted what I've been doing, for sure. I want to talk about Atera partly because it seems like everyone, not everyone, but a lot uh -huh. of people that have left that kitchen mm -hmm. have gone on to do incredible things and open up their own restaurants. It has mm -hmm. this like WD-50 vibe where if you were to look at the family <laughs> tree of Atera, it seems like a lot of people have had a lot of success after leaving there. Um, what do you think it is about Matt Leitner and that kitchen that uh, maybe – Maybe it doesn't, but from my perspective, it seems to prepare people for that next step incredibly well. Do you disagree with that statement? Or? Um, I mean, sort of, I do. I mean, look, I love uh, Matt's style. I love what Matt does, what he did. Uh, he's an incredible uh, soul. You know, he's obviously incredibly talented. I love the way he thinks. You know, we, we got along really well at work. Of course, it was very intense, very difficult to do what we did. It was one of the first restaurants probably to do what we were doing that now everyone kind of tried to do, to do these days. Um, no, I actually not sure really was that we prepare people to do that. I just think that people were interested, good people were interested in, go, in working there. So Jamie has had an incredible resume before Atera. You know, I had a really solid resume before Atera. We just got the chance to have to be on the spotlight. I think that's what it was. You know, we had the chance to be working at a tiny restaurant that everyone was so curious about when we were serving our own food. You know, you have to um, talk to guests, you know, have a relationship with purveyors. You know, I mean, you are not in the dark anymore. So I think that's actually something that Matt did, whether it was intentionally or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, the fact that you have that power, you know. After you decide to take the job at Chumley's and you're kind of stepping out on your own for the first time, you could say, and like yeah. you're really front and center. Uh, did you feel like you had sort of solidified your own leadership style? Uh, you'd worked for so many big chefs for a very long time and there can be a tendency when you work for certain people to absorb some of their tendencies or Maybe not. Maybe rebel against them. How was it finding your uh, personal voice? Like there is a difference between being the CDC and being the executive chef. And, For sure. And there are folks that don't understand that 
differential. They just assume that even like, these days. Yeah, they assume <laughs> that you just like asked for maybe a different title when you got your new job. But there, there is like no uh, line of defense uh-huh. at executive chef level, and it can be kind of lonely at that point. Like there's, I not, think it's lonely now. There's nowhere to really turn. So yeah. Um, what about your your leadership style when you're really like the very last say on everything? I mean, that wasn't necessarily something too different. I think the fact of being a CDC for Paul was great. Being, you know, I opened Atera with Matt from being the first only sous chef at Atera to going to be CDC at Atera and then leaving. I think I was, without knowing, I think without knowing, I was very prepared for that. Of the, you know, the fact that you know how to run someone else's kitchen. So, I mean, I think the big difference was actually understanding how you're trying to understand your food and explain it to someone else, you know? I think that's the difference, you know? More than doubting the decisions that you make. I think that was never actually the problem. Yeah. You're now at Gotham. Uh-huh. And <laughs> yes. we've reached the Gotham part of the conversation. Uh-huh. Uh, I was waiting for that. <laughs> what, what drew you to the job? The challenge. And is the challenge beyond the fact that Gotham had been so clearly defined as one thing for its entirety of its existence? If I were your friend and you had said to me, I think I'm going to take the Gotham job. I know exactly what you would have said. You know exactly what I would have said. That's exactly what everyone said to me. So what did everybody say? What did everybody say, which is what I'm about to say? (laughs) What? A, a few people said they're still open. (laughs) Then other people said wait, what? And then I was like, I know. And then, you know, someone, a few, not many, I would say a couple of people that are very, very, very close to me, uh, women, two of my really dearest friends, you know, they were like, interesting. Instead of being like, I love that, you know, instead of being like, I probably would have been, if you were the one saying that to me, would have been like, what are you, what, what, what are you saying? But then they were like, interesting. And why are you interested? So I said, I don't know. I think it could be an interesting challenge. And then it was a conversation with a couple of people. But for sure, I mean, you know, my friends, the people that I hang out with, I mean, they haven't been there either ever or in like 15 years. I think my gut reaction would be, oh, that seems like an unreasonable challenge because you're never going to be able to satisfy not it has nothing to do with your skill set or your ability to bring anything it has more to do with the fact that you'll never be able to satisfy the existing clientele who treat that place like it's an extension of their own home like how how my god did you just read my thoughts right now (laughs) i mean it is true i think it's something that still happens these days you know i i was probably very naive about it but the flip side of that, I think, is so freeing because it does actually give you in some wonderful kind of freeing way is when you know you're never going to be able to satisfy certain people, you stop worrying about satisfying them. And then you can kind of do your own thing and hopefully you win them over. Um, so I, I mm. wonder, like, did you go in saying to yourself, uh, Mr. and Mrs. 75-year-old person who's been going to Gotham for 34 years, Right. I'm definitely going to win them over with my cuisine. Or did you approach it as like, well, I may win them over, but I think that I will bring in new bodies and they will understand what I'm doing. I mean, I went in not thinking the first at all, but thinking that people will be more open, you know? I think that was probably my 
naivete, like I said before. Um, and I mean naive in a, in a very candid way, you know, not in a negative way. I mean it like I had every single hope and that people would be, I don't know, like, you know, I love diversity. I love change. I love, I love different things. You know, I get excited by them. I, I don't like routines to be the same unless they're obviously positive for the staff. So I thought, you know, that it would be an interesting change. I didn't understand quite well until I was inside. You know, I think that's when kind of it hit me. You came in and you, you changed the entire menu, right? Like nothing yes. remained pretty much? Pretty, I mean, to be honest, nothing. I mean, you know, they were concerned about the sort of, you know, there's, it's a place, as you can understand, where, you know, sort of the steak program, we're having steaks or some, some things like, you know, caviar, if I was ever going to not do that. I mean, I'm not stupid. You know, I understand what kind of restaurant it is. So I get it that, you know, those things, they have to stay, but they're the way I would see a steak. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that was it. Everything else just gone. I mean, I think is the only way that I could have been honest to myself and everyone else. If not, it would have been a sacrilege to like what I do, you know. Gotham has been reviewed uh, by the New York Times. Uh, it's one of the most reviewed restaurants in all of New York. Yeah, I still cannot understand that, but yes. And uh, that was difficult, by the way, it, you know, coming in knowing that. So, so yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Usually when you are opening up a spot and you're hoping for a review, it's just... It's new. There's going to be <laughs> there's gonna be a review and it's going to be based on what they experience now. Now, with yes. With me, right? Yes. Okay, so Pete Wells comes hopefully three, four times usually, right? Right. But you're also going up against history, which is that it's always ha had a three-star review. Yeah. And every reviewer... Has re it's sort of like this weird rite of passage for New York Times. They hire a new reviewer and they and then they go there. They say, "Hey, go to Gotham and yeah. see if they still have three stars." So, you you got a three star review. It was a glowing review. Feel like validation, or did it feel like you had met expectations, or neither? Validation, and uh, I was able to breathe again. <laughs> I mean, look. You know, I have never experienced a psychological trauma of coming to a restaurant where you have the reviews printed and hanging on the window of a restaurant. You know what it feels to someone that's going through a review process and all, this, all the things that we had to go through to reopen Gotham and see and look at those every day? Every day. Every day, I will walk literally by the door and literally see, I don't know, five? I can't even remember now. I mean... Yeah, I was happy when those reviews came down, you know, when I didn't have to look at them anymore. But I mean, the pressure was horrendous. Yeah, what's what's so challenging is that, let's be honest, four stars is a, a bit unrealistic based on what how Pete Wells judges restaurants. He mm -hmm. just rarely ever gives four stars unless it's like, a $3,000 tasting menu and, you know... And even, and even with that, you still don't know whether that's going to make it. So, yeah. Right, exactly. And, and two stars wouldn't have been... Uh, I knew that two stars would have not been something good for us. Right. I'm not... I mean, I can't lie about it. I knew that I needed three. I knew that the chances of getting two could have been huge. I never took it for granted. I never knew what was going to happen. I had no idea. I couldn't read it. I couldn't, you know, all I knew is that I have to be, the only confidence that I have is that I did what I thought was right. 
and the food that I would like to serve and the things that I like to highlight, you know? So I didn't do anything that was against my principles, you know? I think that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, but the process for sure, you know, and it is validation, you know, you do need that pat on the shoulder. You know, the difference of running your own kitchen, if actually going back to that question, I'm going to tell you one thing. I realized this year, you know, when you have that chef that, let's just be honest, in my career has always been a man, you know, that puts your hand on your shoulder and says, she is the one and you need to listen to her. She's my CDC. She's my sous chef, whatever you want. That creates respect by, it's just immediate. You know what I mean? The fact that then you are, the executive chef, there's no one giving you that validation and that pat on the shoulder to say, I am with her and she is my, the extension of what I do. It's incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. Now that you're, now that that process, the review process is behind you, you've achieved that. Uh, what is motivating you day to day to elevate the restaurant, elevate yourself, uh, and not just retaining the status quo like what is making you every day well i hate the status quo Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i just hate that so no i hate uh no i like change i like action i like movement i like things being dynamic i think one of them is like we still have challenges i mean i couldn't lie about that um and i want people to understand you know we you know, just the thing is that sometimes people, just, they don't give you a chance, you know. I think because exactly what you said, it's been the extension of their home for so long. It's almost like it became their diner, you know. It's like you can ask for whatever you want and you'll get it. So it is tough to do that. I think these days, actually, my concern as it was before, too, is the staff. You know, how to have a great staff, how to keep inspiring them, how to keep doing new things, how to... You know, there's so much more to do. You know, I get, I mean, obviously now we're all concerned with Corona, you know, so it's like trying to make sure that the home that we have, you know, as a basement downstairs is safe. That's one of my concerns. I want to ask about mental health and chef mental health, which Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, I'm asking this question sort of for myself as a business owner and someone who does this, I tend to like define all my self-worth like through my restaurant and through Mm. my job like if i'm not a chef and i don't have my spot then what am i it seems like you kind of alluded to that a little bit back a couple minutes ago in our conversation so i'm wondering like uh how do you approach the day-to-day of uh of defining yourself through your work and and feeling self-worth if tomorrow we both, for some crazy reason, like if we couldn't go into our jobs and do what we do, mm. um, what would you do to kind of uh, define yourself? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it's true. I think one of them is just trying to understand that uh, you're more than the chef. You know what I mean? That you're Victoria, the friend, lover, daughter. You know what I mean? Uh not so much granddaughter these days, but you know that you are many shades of something else. Um, it is for sure something that I deal with every day because it is, you know, for me going to work is like second nature. Um, trying to teach someone, you know, about how to do things differently or how to view things. But I think these days 
I'm just trying to understand myself in the space and to also understand, you know, the problem is that I'm super intense for sure. And when I go into a restaurant, I just like, I want everything to work well. You know, I want, I will grab so much to be under my umbrella, even though it's not my responsibility. And I'm trying to step back from that. I'm trying to understand that perfection sometimes, yes, of course, is unachievable to understand that also it is, I, there's part of me that I leave in every place that I go, but I think to enjoy a little bit more the people that actually make me stay here, you know? I mean, I made a decision, a conscious decision when I got divorced to stay here. And it wasn't, yes, of course it was about work, but I would say that also I had met so many amazing people and then I have so many great friends that have never questioned where I'm from, who I am. And that I love seeing, that I'm trying to reconnect with that and reconnect with who I am. Um, and understand that I am also a loving soul, you know, that I do get great pleasure by trying to either see someone who can give me either or show me how to be different, you know, trying to understand kindness in a different way. I'm trying to see that a little bit more, you know. Chef, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you. This and, has been great. And sharing your story with us. And you heard at the top of the show, you heard one of my colleagues talking about visiting restaurants and supporting restaurants. We were talking a little bit on air, uh, off air about all the challenges that yes. exist in the restaurant world when everything is going wonderfully. And of course, uh, we have so many people that work with us, alongside us in the New York uh, restaurant community. And everyone is uh, is really feeling it right now. Absolutely, for and, sure. And uh, listeners, we implore you, we ask you to go out and support your local restaurants and realize that everybody that's working there is working incredibly hard uh, and really is super reliant on that job. And we obviously, as business owners and leaders in the kitchen, we want to support our staff and make sure that they have uh, a safe work environment that they can continue to come into. Absolutely. I will say for sure for people not to panic, you know, and apart from that, it's like everyone has anxiety. I don't think it's wrong to say it. I think just say how you feel, you know, we're all concerned. We don't know how this is going to develop, but I think support the industry, also supporting each other, going to restaurants that you like, different, you know, neighborhoods. It's actually something good to do. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thank you, Chef. Uh, everyone who's Thank listening, you, uh, you can find this episode and all episodes of other shows on heritageradionetwork.org. We've got over 10,000 hours of amazing podcasts for you to listen to. And you can find this episode and all the other episodes of The Line anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, we're on Spotify as well. We've got a new episode coming for you next week, Tuesday at 11 a.m. here on Heritage Radio. The Line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.